Hey, this is the moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. This is a rarity. Uh, I have a guest on I've never even spoken to before. Um, we have uh, someone that Allison works with a lot is somebody I've worked with. And I asked him to connect us, the great Alex Gibney, because um, I've been watching Allison's films for a long time. And I think that they're brilliant. I think she's among the very best documentarians, narrative storytellers working today. So our guest is Allison Elwood, whose work you know. Uh, she made the Eagles documentary, um, the Go-Go's documentary, the just phenomenal woman of Troy, American Jihad, and uh, a, a number more. And um, her career arc is also fascinating, I think, because Allison, you started as an editor and uh, like I started making movies at a bit of a late age. I think you got your start as a director at a bit of a late age, which is always inspiring to people. So uh, Alison Elwood, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Also, I love the Laurel Canyon thing. And and um, I have questions about that. And I, I wanted to tell you that my um, my dad was a music publisher and his first or second hit was Happy Together. That was his song. <laughs> he got the song to the Turtles. Wow, that's amazing. And and so hearing the way you used it um, really blew my mind. And because that that's a song that I I knew those songwriters, Alan Gordon and Gary Bonner growing up. And and um, and that song's tricky. You know, that lyric is not what it, it purports to be. And you seem to choose everything for uh, very specific reasons as a filmmaker and Happy Together is a song that sounds happy, but isn't really. And as Laurel Canyon was a place that seemed like that. And I wonder how consciously, or I know, so I want you to talk about how consciously each one of those choices in terms of the way you frame a shot, the mise-en-scene, the, even in a documentary, the music you choose, sort of how it's available to be unpacked by the viewer. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, Laurel Canyon was interesting because you know, it was taking place in the 60s and the 70s. And, you know, people look back with nostalgia, but there was, you know, a dark undertone to a lot of that. The, you know, Vietnam War was raging. Civil rights were, you know, an ongoing issue. Um, you know, it's everybody looks back and says, oh, it's free love and peace, love and happiness. And there was a lot of other stuff going on um, beneath the surface. And so those songs that appear to be happy, you know, are speaking about a greater human truth. And as the 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 darkness that's at the edges of that, and also I would say the the lightness that are at the edges of darkness, hmm. these things seem to animate you. Uh, your work seems to me to try to take in both all those shadings at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I think that we're all all, all life is you know it's not black and white; it's all shades of gray. And, you know, that's what makes things interesting, that we're all lightness and we're all darkness. You know, we have bits of everything in us and it's what we choose to act on and um, create with that, that I think defines who we are. Yeah, the David, it's fascinating. You know, I watched like three documentaries about David Crosby this year and, and your version of Crosby isn't purely a negative version of Crosby. And I thought that was a fascinating choice. I mean, you obviously know who he is and that's clear, but you're, you seem to be interested in stressing 
other parts of it as well. Yeah, I mean, just just having him be honest about who he was, and he understands the co- the contradictions within his own character. It was an interesting interview with him. Um, you know, it was in person, and the first thirty minutes were really lovely, and then he just got in a really bad mood out of nowhere. <laughs> it was very um, unsettling. <laughs> Had you seen the David Crosby documentary before or did you watch it after and then did it all make a little more sense to you? Yeah, I, I watched all those films after. I didn't want any anything to, to be colored by any of it, um, to be impacted by anything that anybody else had done. I hadn't watched the the other Laurel Canyon film, Echo right. in the Canyon. I didn't watch the Linda Ronstadt film, any of those until we were done. The the uh, Yeah, here's a... When, when you're talking about that, trying to stay pure as you're doing that the work and that way, or pure to your thesis... I, I only made one doc, but when I did, what was fascinating to me was um, the way you have a thesis and then you prosecute that thesis, but often the thesis gets um, challenged in a way that you have to revise your thesis. Mm-hmm. And and so I, I wonder, I, I want to start with process and then get back into biography because uh, people rarely talk about the, on, like, po- on, on sort of pop podcasts, they rarely talk about the, the work that goes into a documentary. And I think that the, the 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 craft serves the art at such a high level. It's so difficult to make a compelling documentary. So I really want to talk process a bit. When 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 do you start to get sort of like the thesis for the film? And does it usually present the thesis at the same time you get the structural idea? I'm thinking of uh, Women of Troy and the Eagles doc in particular. Women of Troy, it seems to me, there's a sort of a thesis about Cheryl and also about Cynthia that, and it felt to me like, oh, the structure of how this lays out goes with this central idea. And I'm wondering how that stuff happens for you. Yeah. A woman of Troy was a bit trickier, uh, structurally, you know, it was a little bit broader, more of the team initially. Um, but we started to realize as we honed it in that the real drama of it was the Cheryl Cynthia story because Cheryl was, should you know if you were writing it Cheryl would have been this the rising star and would have achieved the stardom and the and the crown at the end and it was and and it was in fact um, Cynthia that that got it because of Cheryl's injury um, and deservedly in her own right um, in Cynthia's own right she did had a spectacular career um, but that one was a little bit harder to find but once we realized that that's really where the story was it, we sort of honed it honed it down more to those two um, but that one was a little bit more difficult structurally. Laurel Canyon structurally, what I was afraid of going into that one and was that it was going to feel like an anthology and, and this happened and that happened and this happened. And what we started finding, and it was purely a process of discovery, were these very organic connections between the characters um, that just happened that we that we stumbled upon and realized that that's how we would lead from one character to another. So you, in some ways, in Laurel Canyon, you kind of never know who's coming out next. <laughs> um, yes, which I which you know was very intentional, but not not always the easiest thing to figure out. We we really searched for these organic connections. But when we were shooting that, one of the interesting things that happened, which was sad too, uh, that was the that phone call with Henry Diltz when Peter Tork dies, that actually happened the very first day we were filming. Um, and I knew at that moment, you know, we were just, we weren't even really, we were just sort of test rolling, fooling around. And I just, I yeah. signaled to Sam, the camera operator, 
our DP, I said, just keep rolling, keep rolling. Cause I realized that this was the way to get the monkeys into that story. And then you put an image of them in super early actually. Yeah. 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 So that was, cause you know, that was a big one to figure out, you know, cause we knew Mickey Dolan and, and the monkeys were such a big part of that scene, but people don't really realize that when you think of Laurel Canyon. Because they weren't songwriters. So right. people don't write deals. Everyone else, in, in the whole thing, pretty much, maybe not Michelle, but, but, but John, what, like they're all songwriters, you know what I mean? They're all, so you think of them as artists in a way you don't think of the monkeys as artists, I guess. Right. Right. But what was, what's great is that the, that community did think of them as artists. Right. Um, they considered them artists very much so. Um, but what was also fun is that, that because they were so successful from their television show, they were the ones that had the money that they could throw right. those big parties that went on for days. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. And depicted amazingly. When, well, when something like that happens, you're, you're there, you're sort of test rolling. Are you, because a lot of time on documentaries, people shoot, then edit, then shoot, then edit. But with your editorial background, are you one of those people who is kind of editing it as you're going or thinking of the problems you know you have to solve and then trying to solve them sort of in real time? It's a bit of both. Um, you know, I, I always think in terms of editing because, you know, for documentaries anyway, I think that's really ultimately where the story is, where the film is made. Um, you know, you can go in so many different directions, but that's where it's structured. That's the writing of it. That's the, you know, it's really where it's how it's conceived. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously aware of the editing and I mean, every film is different um, in terms of how you know, when you shoot compared to when you start editing and when you go back to shoot. Um, you know, also a lot of it has to do with people's schedules. I mean, Laurel Canyon, we had so many artists we were interviewing. We, we were, you know, in many ways dependent on people's schedules. So we would have to skip sections and move on knowing we'd come back when we got the voices we needed. This sort of interplay between groups of people seems to really fire you up. I mean, so many of your films... You know, the, the Kesey film, Women of Troy, Laurel Canyon, Eagles are, and I guess in certain ways, American Jihad too, but are about th these these groups of people, sometimes with a charismatic leader, but, but these groups of people who come together and either bring out the best in one another or the best and then the worst in one another. And, and is it a conscious thing that those are the stories that interest you? Or is it the kind of thing you look back on and realize, oh, I made five films about this? I just think that that's the stuff that makes interesting stories. Um, you know, that, that, that people are not one dimensional. And when you put more than two, three people together, you, that those dimensions expand exponentially. And sometimes there are fireworks and sometimes there are wars, <laughs> right. you know, um, and sometimes both, uh, which which is also what I I find fascinating, and and that that individuals become strangely more they become stronger in a group, but they also become more volatile, and that's where egos have an opportunity to explode, and ultimately be always becomes the biggest problem. And are you usually going into these things when when we talk about a thesis for a film? Do you usually have a I agree with you that they're made in the at documentaries are, are often made in the editing room. I mean, um, the questions you ask are also really, so the research is also yeah. super important, right? Absolutely. It's clear you do an incredible amount of research. So you know what, 
what to ask as you're gathering the material. Um, because when I watch Woman of Troy, and I, I have to say, like, I, I loved it um, because also so much of that story, I, I'm a basketball freak, but I didn't know a lot of that story. Um, how do you decide as you're going, like the twins, I really didn't know much about them. And I read a lot about them after I watched it. And how do you, how do you know going in, okay, we're going to, I can only do a little bit with them, but I hope you'll then go and, and, and look on your own because their story was remarkable too. Oh, I wanted to, I, that, that was one of the saddest things for me is that we couldn't do, originally there was a lot more of them in the film and that's a really, really rich story. Um, and I knew that the minute I met those, <laughs> those two, uh, that would, you know, the day I interviewed them, I mean, you, it was palpable, their, their dynamic. Um, and I did want more of them in the film, but, you know, unfortunately it could only be an hour in length. And as I said before, the, the main story honed in on Cynthia and Cheryl. So, but yeah, absolutely. They're, they, they, that's a, an amazing story. A lot of those players are, are, have amazing stories, actually, all of them. Yeah, I mean, you feel that. And, and, and the last sort of specific question about that, just because I think it talks about um, directorial and editorial choices. You tease at the beginning of the film, you tease the fall of Cheryl. That's sort of like where we start. Mm -hmm. But you sneak Cynthia in. You don't tease that story at all up front. And how conscious are you of the the, the magic parts of this? You know, what, what you're going to reveal when and how that stuff serves the ultimate meaning? Because it's the fall of Cheryl Miller, but it's also the rise of Cynthia Cooper. And you that's and the long arduous rise of Cynthia Cooper and and um and I was I was wondering how why it, it was positioned in the way that like what what led to to you choosing to structure it that way um you know initially we weren't going to tease the fall of Cheryl up front but the edi uh. the editor and I he and I had the same thought on the same day that it'll raise the stakes so much more yeah. if you know out of the gate that something really bad is going to happen to this superstar. Um, and if for those people who weren't familiar with her story and Cynthia's, you wouldn't want to tease. You want that to be a total surprise that comes out of left field that, you know, this kid who's struggling in her experience at, at, at USC and whose brother is killed and drops out and, and then comes back and then has this incredible career. Um, that you wouldn't want to tease that because that you want to be the surprise as you go along. But teasing the Cheryl thing, I think you go, oh, something interesting is going to happen here. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I knew Cheryl's story because I am a basketball fanatic, but that's, so that's the one part of it I knew and the rest of it I really didn't know. And, and, and I agree it, it, it set up in a way and it really delivered. Uh, so you were aware when you made the choice about the Cheryl thing, that it was a little bit of a misdirection. It kind of makes you think, the whole thing's focused on Cheryl and it turns out right. almost be 50, 50, not yeah. quite, but almost. Yeah, no, absolutely. That was definitely a conscious decision, but we didn't know going into it, we were going to do that. We knew that the story, we, the, the, we knew the story was Cheryl focused. Um, and the more we got into it, the more we realized how Cynthia was a bigger part and how the two of them would be the back and forth with the others as the supporting cast. Um, yeah. But teasing the Cheryl thing was sort of a, an idea late in the game no pun intended, that, um, that we came up with um, 
as a way to give it a dramatic hook out of the gate, you know, and I do think people are familiar with Cheryl. Um, they know the name. Yes. Um, so I, I think, you know, even if you just know the name, but you don't know the story and you find out something's going to happen, you know, you set up the, you set up her greatness and, you know, set them up and knock them down. <laughs> yeah, no, right. Again, the Jordan comparison is, yeah. is, is great. And watching her dunk and all this stuff that if you, even if you've watched her on TV for all those years as a commentator, if you did, you, you might not have it front of mind. So that, that was a, um, a great choice. When do you realize in the process, which parts of the stories and which characters require the most time? Like whose story needs to be told fully, where you can compress stuff, how, but, you know, and sometimes like on the Eagles, you end up doing it over four hours and Laurel Canyon over three and a half hours. But how how does that stuff happen? Is it while you're interviewing them? Is it always in editing? Is it ahead of time? It's a little bit of everything. I mean, I think, you know, you have you do. I, I mean, I do do a lot of research before I go into things. So I know the stories very well before we start shooting or start cutting or anything. So there's a little bit of that that, you know, is formed in research. There's a little bit that's discovered when you do an interview with someone, like something is revealed that you didn't know or a story is told in a way that you hadn't heard it before. Um, mostly it's editing, and but, but I will say that every film is completely different. I mean, usually the openings of films are the hardest thing in the world to get. On American Jihad, I knew that that was the opening of that film that I wanted to do. I had to fight tooth and nail the entire time to keep it. <laughs> And had to keep changing it over and over and over to finally get it. Um, Why? What was the resistance? Um, gosh, it was so long ago. It was. It was. I. I. I, I, don't, I don't honestly understand because I thought it was. I thought it was great, but there was a lot of resistance from network executives that they didn't want to begin that way. And you know, when I look at the very first version that we had of it compared to what we ended up with, I think that they were right to push me to change it. But I just kept fighting for it. Um, but you know, like the the Ken Kesey film, that that film had I can't tell you how many beginnings. <laughs> you know, well, so it's many. so hard to compete with Tom Wolfe's opening image of Ken Kesey, that, right? Right, which I had in my head the whole time. You know, I went back and watched the Kesey film recently. Yeah. I had missed. I did not see the Kesey film when it first came out. And and you know, but Electric Fluid Acid Test, like one of my favorite books ever. Yeah, and a huge book for me when I was young. And that image is really hard to fight with, but you did a great job. And also getting Neil on film, the you know, showcasing Neil that early for people hip to the story, which is another question I want to ask you about audience, Be, because most people don't know who Neil Cassidy is. Right. And so your way of sig the signifiers that you use throughout your stuff all the time, it does seem to me in the best way novelists do it, Allison, that you're through your research, through your work. You're finding stuff that has layers of meaning. So that shot of Neil, and you say who he is and stuff, but to someone my age, 54, who's a writer, right, that is going to be super loaded. To somebody else, he really doesn't mean that much. And, and so how are you thinking about all that? Oh, gosh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, it, it always just comes down to what, what hits me and what, when I show it to people and whether they respond to it. Um, you know, and, and yeah, certainly some characters are harder to set up than others because people are sometimes not known. Um, but, you know, it's just moments that, I mean, I kind of consider myself a writer. I always wanted to be a photojournalist when I was a kid as from five years old. 
And I feel like becoming a documentary filmmaker is sort of doing that just with moving word, moving pictures and, and spoken words versus writing. Um, but you are editing and writing the, the words because through editing. Um, I'm not sure I answered that question very clearly. No, that, that's fine. It, it just struck me that that Neil Cassidy, if you're somebody who cares about certain things, you just want to rewind that and play it again because any image of him is so... It, um, any image of him moving or caught in a way that people is 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 going to sort of lead to a lot of other questions and thoughts. And but for like a lot of people, it's oh, that's a guy who was around this guy who wrote One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. You know what I mean? It it's a uh, it's different depending on what you bring to the film. Yeah, for sure. But there's also I would say I would argue that there's absolutely no one, no one on earth who moved or moves like. Neil Cassidy. <laughs> yeah. There is a uniqueness to it. It's in the same way Hunter Thompson had that, I think. Yeah. Yes. I mean, yeah, and you're talking to someone who, who gave his son the middle name Hunter. There you so, go. <laughs> for that reason, for, for sort of what Hunter supposedly thought he represented yeah. in America. And also, so you always question what people say. Yeah. So, yeah, um, that's a, a great documentary. Um, another one I forgot to mention that, that you did that's great. I read that you were born in Australia, but obviously you have no accent. So yeah, I was born in Australia. I was only there for a couple of years, and we moved to this country. And I lived uh, all over this country, and then we lived in London for a while. So I, I was, when I was five, I was living in the U.S. What part of the country? Uh, five would have been New Jersey. And why were you? Was your family peripatetic? Uh, no, no, I, I was obsessed with National Geographic, just obsessed with it. But, but why were you traveling all over the place? Oh, because uh, my dad uh, used to do did the uh, groundwater design for nuclear power plants. Wow, yeah. that's intense. Yeah. And which obviously at a certain age, you realized that at a certain age, you didn't know what that meant. No. Loaded <laughs> no, didn't know, didn't know for a long time. And then, of course, when you know, hitting teenage years, the, the dinner discussions got a lot more heated. Wait, my mind, wait, hold on. My mind just got blow, blew up. Did you tell Jackson when you first sat down with Jackson? Did you tell him? No. Why? I mean, no nukes was like Jackson's big. Oh famous yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, no. I, no, I didn't. Yeah. Because, uh, right. Jackson Brown for people that don't know, he yeah, launched yeah. Big no nukes, very famous, no nukes concert and kind of movement at a certain point. And Jackson's a huge part of the, uh, of the Eagles story among other stories um so wait you're five years old and uh what happened that made you think about telling stories with a camera when you were little I, as i said i was just obsessed with national geographic and photographs i wanted to travel the world and see the world and take pictures and i started taking pictures i, I think my dad got me my first camera when i was like seven and i started taking pictures and um, i just was hooked and then did you go to college to become a filmmaker? Yeah. Like how did you yeah, become a what, what was your journey? Basically, you, so you go from a camera and wanting to tell National Geographic type stories to hooking up with Alex and doing all this incredible stuff together, but with you as an, as an editor and then director. Can you, can you talk about what your various ambitions were, uh, especially as since you, you exploded uh, and, and got this really big career sort of late? So could you, could you give us a little bit of that narrative journey? 
Well, yeah. I mean, also as a as a, as a teenager, I just fell in love with movies. Um, so I just fell in love with cinema, and then I decided that that was the the route I wanted to go. And I did go to film school. I went to NYU, um, and just started working right away. And you know, editing is sort of what I was naturally drawn to initially, um, and you know, it just just loved it from the beginning. Um, you know, and I directed some stuff earlier on. Like I, I, I mean, it, I was probably in my 30s when I first started doing any directing. I directed some of the American High episodes with R.J. Cutler. Right. Um, and oh, RJ, yeah. Yeah. So you know, but then you know, I mean, it's hard though. You know, especially as an editor, you get put in that box. It's yes. it's hard to break out. Um, but Alex, you know, was was great and was always. Um, giving me opportunities like that. It, you know, part of the problem, the, part of the delay with that too, is that the Kesey film, which, you know, was the first film I co-directed with him, that that film took five years to make. So it was a lot of stop and start and in between doing some more producing and editing. But then once I got through that, it's I pretty much stayed to directing as much as possible. Did that film and the way in which you got to work with our, a particular kind of archival footage give you the confidence that you could take that Eagles footage and make something compelling out of it and form a narrative of stuff that you didn't shoot with, you know, questions you didn't, and the beginning that you didn't ask? Well, totally. Well, for one thing, the Eagles footage was like intact. Ken Kesey hadn't hacked it up over 20 something years. (laughs) And, uh, you know, the, 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 the crew that shot that back in the seventies wasn't on acid the entire time they were shooting. <laughs> right. That's another <laughs> advantage. I mean, you know, that, that Kesey footage was a nightmare to work with. Um, you know, but it was also, and as you, yes. And I guess as you show in the go-go's film, um, the Eagle stuff might've been done on Coke, but that affects people very differently. Yeah. They can be productive. Yeah. Yeah, but the film the filmmakers weren't doing that. They were capturing it. It was very different. Right. Whereas the Kesey right. characters were all whacked out yeah. when they were shooting. Um, anyway, so um, but yeah, no. When I saw the Eagles footage, I knew immediately that we could make something. That there were that the so much of those characters came through in that footage, and the tension between them. You it was palpable. You could see it. You could feel it. Um, and that's a film where the beginning, we cut the beginning and it never changed that, um, yes, that it's amazing. nothing changed. That was, we, I, I just saw that and said that this is the way this begins. Um, yeah. So. And when you were working on Eagles, how much, I mean, I read that Rolling Stone story where, where you say that Glenn told you to go for it, but how were the lines drawn between what they would approve and what they wouldn't approve and how difficult or easy is that dance to do? Uh, you know, I've talked to Joe Berlinger, not on here, uh, but about the way that worked with some kind of monster and it was fascinating. So how did all that stuff work? And I, I, I worked for Irving once, so I understand sort of all of that stuff. So how did that work? Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, it, 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 I have to say it was a it was a good experience. I mean, we, basically, we go in and we say, you know, we we're not making a fluff piece. If you want a commercial for yourselves, we're not the ones to do it. We're, we we want to tell a real story, so you you're going to have to be honest with us. We ha- we have good you know BS radar, and you know you'll be honest with us, and we'll tell an honest film that'll 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 be an honest story that 
that you lived and and you have to establish that trust early on um and and they're reluctant often to to give it up they think that they can hold on to it but i have to say that that they were there were a couple of things that were off limits right. um but it made sense for those things to be off limits they were more salacious and drug related yep. which you know there's enough of that anyway uh you don't really need to go deeper down that rabbit hole it's like for, and also everybody knows that stuff that's less interesting to me um and that's what's so funny too like with the gogos it was the more salacious stuff that they were afraid of and i said i'm not even interested in that as much you know <laughs> I want right. to know about the music and the artistry and the personalities and your your stories, what you guys went through. You know, by the time you're making the Go Go's film, though, you're not giving up approvals to them. Whereas in the Eagles film, you giving up approvals to them, right? Yeah, but they were they knew that we weren't going to, you know, that if they pushed us too far, that we would take we would have taken our names off of it, and and they right. didn't. You know, I mean, they they wanted to Don wanted to redo things because he didn't say things exactly, you know, grammatically properly. <laughs> you know, it's like, I, I was like, Don, people don't talk like that. And he's like, no, I don't, I don't like sounding like that. So it was like little weird audio things sure. he wanted to read. Sure. Glenn was pretty cool. When Joe saw it, he said, uh, he, he was like, oh shit, I didn't know they were going to be so honest. I want to do this again. And we, you know, we re-interviewed him and he told even more stories. <laughs> so That's when he told the whole thing about them saving his life or whatever. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit for people who are interested in how to, how to do this? How do you develop rapport quickly with people when you know you're going to have to take them into territory like Felder and like the Go-Go's first bass player, where you have to take them into territory where the ramifications of their behavior led and behavior of others led to a fork in the road that turned out to be pretty bad for, for, for them. Um, how do you gain their trust in an endeavor like this? I mean, it's hard, but you, you ultimately say, look, this is part of the story. It happened. You were part of it. We want to hear your side of it. Um, otherwise, you're, we're just hearing it from other people. And it's more impactful to hear it from, from you. It's more honest. And then how do you... Um, how do you do the sort of judicious part of figuring out who's taking us through a certain part of the story in one of those situations you're using? Because the film does leave the film does leave the viewer, all your films do, I think, with a point of view that's not just the character's point of view, but that's your point of view on the material also. And and that means you have to kind of land on, um, you know, when one watches the film, one lands on Henley's side vis-a-vis -vis Felder and that one vocal, right? And that's your ultimately kind of your decision, I think. Yeah, I mean, in that particular example, I would say I, would, I was kind of torn <laughs> about that decision. But, but I, you know, I do think it was right in the end what they, what they decided. I don't think how they did it was right. Um, but, you know, I mean, I, the, I mean, I feel like I'm a little bit gonzo in my approach to things because like Hunter, I don't, I don't believe in objectivity in journalism. I believe in fairness. 
in journalism because you're not the minute you turn a camera on someone versus someone else you're no longer objective you're subjective so you know but i do strongly believe in fairness and that you know you don't make shit up and if you do you fess up that you made shit up in the moment like you know i mean hunter was notorious for just whole cloth making things up um, and he would always eventually fess up. But, you know, if you're doing it in a documentary, you got to fess up right away. Well, also, yeah, you don't, I would say, I, I wrote this down to say to you, which is an amazing thing is you don't really do the, you don't really do the gotcha thing of, 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 uh, you know, cut to somebody, cut to somebody else saying the thing that shows them, like, you don't do that for effect to, to fuck with people. It's clear to me that you have like a lot of respect for the people who, get in front of the camera for you and expose themselves. And it does seem to me like your intention is to be fair. Yeah. I mean, it takes, it takes courage to get in front of a camera. It genuinely does. Um, and I respect that. And, you know, I mean, the, the Felder moment when he walked away, I mean, everybody felt like that was a gotcha moment. I, all I asked him was, do you miss it? I mean, it was, it was truly an emotional gut reaction he had. Um, it wasn't a trick gotcha moment. I mean, you know, like, no, I come away thinking. I mean, you come away from that thinking that Felder wrote the riff that became Hotel California. What more can he want? Yeah. Than yeah. Um, and, and I think the other thing that you come away with, which I wonder when you were going in, is I think the perception was always that 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 Henley was the um, intellectual, like Henry was the genius and Fry was kind of like just the good looking dude who was able to sing these songs and kind of helped write some of them. but. But you realize that Fry's brain was almost equal to Henley's and, in fact, career-wise, really important. Like, did you know that kind of thing going into? I, I knew he was a business genius. Right. I, you know, just from talking to him. And, you know, he understood something. He studied. And, and we get into it a little bit in the Laurel Canyon film that he studied what people were doing, what, what makes a good band, what makes a good song, what makes... He wanted to understand the business side of it. And as a result, they were they were smarter business, they were more business savvy than than a lot of other bands that got that got uh in terms of publishing, uh got in, got in trouble. But of yeah. course they also had Irving. So you know, they had the best, I mean, one of the smartest <laughs> business minds in the history of the yeah. entertainment business. Yeah. Um, and if he was arguing for you, there was nobody more effective or and you know, his belief in Henley was so great that that he would do anything yeah. for, for Henley. And so while Fry was aligned with that, it was very helpful, right? Yeah. Um, it, d when you bring up business and and the business of documentaries is, I mean, you lived it like really hard until a certain point in lots of ways. And you, you, you go to film school and you come out, you start working as an editor. Do, how did you survive as an artist in New York? And like, what were your ambitions at, at that time as an artist in, in New York in the 80s or 90s or whatever? Yeah, I mean, you know, when I first started as an editor, I mean, I loved editing. I've always also wanted to write. I've always written on the side. Um, you know, I've been working on, I've worked on screenplays and stuff. I mean, I've never, I haven't sold anything. I did have a writing agent for a while when I was living in Los Angeles and came close to selling a couple of scripts. Um, but you know, it's hard to, to maintain that, um, yeah. and, and work as grueling a career in documentary as I was doing. So it's, you know, the writing's been more labor of love, but, um, you know, I still stick to it and I, you know, I would love to do some narrative work at some point. Um, 
but that's awesome. So wait, do, do you, uh, do you go after narrative directing gigs like TV directing gigs or any kind of narrative directing gigs, or you just want to write the stuff that you direct? Uh, I have not gone after uh, directing gigs and narrative stuff at at this point. Um, I I feel like, I mean, I certainly wouldn't turn it down if I had an opportunity. Um, but I think, I think, I, yeah, I just an opportunity hasn't come up to do that yet. Right. And it hasn't, you haven't made it like a big focus of your Right. Career. And I, I feel like honestly to break into that, I feel like I'd have to write it. No, I mean, Maybe, maybe for a woman, I mean, I know for a woman it's harder, but, but Alex and Joe each have gotten shots at it and, and you've kind of put yourself where those guys are in your career, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but they both wanted, I'd say they both really wanted it. So you have to, I, I mean, it's just my own two cents having hired Alex for his first narrative job on billions. I, you know, I felt when I sat down with him, like, this is something he really wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, I, yeah. Yeah, I guess you got to, I mean, I, when we were interviewed for Women of Jigsaw, I, I said, that's the other thing, you got you to gotta make things happen for yourself. Um, and I do believe that, and I guess I just haven't gone after it that strongly. Um, yes, and I, I get that. It's hard, by the way, when, when, when you're able to get work in the thing you're doing, and it's, and it's actually after a long time, I can see why you, you would put pedal to the metal to do this. And you get to make, you know, you get to make the Go-Go's documentary, which people freak out over and love so much. I mean, I, I have to ask you, did you anticipate how much that documentary, I, mean, I got 40 emails or whatever the week that documentary came out. <laughs> um, it was crazy the way people were moved by it and not just old people, like everybody. Did, did you have a sense, like how did, can you talk about basically how you decide what project you want to do when you it goes from a possibility to a definite, and then whether you're measuring or thinking about the way it might connect with people. I mean, I always was a big Go Go's fan. I love the music, and they actually wanted me to do the film. They came to me, um, and uh, and I was thrilled. and And then, of course, they got a little nervous, <laughs> thinking they were going to not do it. And then, so we had to go into the convince them again phase. Um, but once once we did that, and we all kind of bonded over, uh, we met several times. We had a lot of phone calls. They're, they live all over the place, so it's hard to get them in one spot. But we ultimately bonded over our love of animals, and particularly our rescue work that we all do. Um, I've completely lost the question. I'm sorry. Well, the question is, how did you decide this is something I want to do? Oh, and oh. How do you go about getting, like, how do you go put, does it come, does someone offer you the Go-Go's? Do you say, I want to make a doc? How does that whole process that, work? That one came to me, which was great. Um, and the Eagles came to me. They actually went to Alex first and Alex said, I can't do it, but I have the right person. And, and they, and we met and they, and they were cool with me doing it. Um, you know, sometimes I have to go after them. Um, sometimes they come to me. Did Netflix want to make Go-Go's or I mean, Showtime want to make Go-Go's? Is that how that happened? Or like, what was the process by which that happened? Showtime? I, you know, I don't actually know the order of which that happened. I think, I think Showtime came in later. Um, but so I, who but, comes to you? I'm saying like, so what kind of figure comes to you? A producer? Or yeah, the, the producers, band? the producer, the band reached through their, through the band's manager. They knew someone who knew someone who knew me. Um, and that happened to be through some producers, so through Emer um, O'Neill the, and Trevor Burney, whose company, Fine Point, 
in um, in in um, Belfast. That's how it came to me. And you get involved in all the 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 fundraising for these documentaries. Like it seems like it's so hard to raise money for documentaries. I always hear that. So how do you how does that all happen? Well, it depends. I mean, you know, once we the the GoGo's funding came through pretty quickly. I think. Um, well, actually, that's not true. It took about a year, I think. Um, you know, I mean, we go, you know, do do pitches to the networks um, on on things like the Eagles film came, you know, funded because they paid for it, so that was good. Yeah. Um, but that's that's very rare. Um, American Jihad was funded by Showtime out of the gate. Uh, Amy came in on board with Keezy. I mean, it depends. Each film's different. Um, but you know the stuff I'm in development on now. It's all it's all just we go out on pitches and try to. Sell. What are those pitches? So what are those pitches like? Like how does that work? So you go pitch the Go Go's. You had to go. Would you do you have do you do like um, a hype reel of some sort where you film for a day or like how does that? Sometimes work? You- sometimes you do uh, Go Go's. We didn't have to do that. Uh, we did for Laurel Canyon. We made a sizzle reel, and I spent a lot of time with Ryan Suffern writing the deck for that. Um, right. A lot of, you know, you write a deck, which has a lot of pictures, and sometimes you need a sizzle reel, sometimes you don't. Um, you know, in the projects I have now, I I have a women in country music four-part series we're working on. It's a 56-page deck that I wrote. Yeah. That's um, an obsession of mine, really? Like, oh, that's an amazing thing. I, uh, that's great. Where does it come go up to? Like, what period of time? Um, it, it's it, it's all-encompassing, actually. Um it, what what I wanted it to be. I mean, it it isn't funded yet. No one no one's bought it yet. So um, I wanted it to be a cross generational conversation of the women of country music from beginning to now, and it jumps around in time. And that's and that's something that you can't always do with you know structurally. But I really wanted to play with time in this um, so that it's not just you know, archival footage, archival footage, more contemporary footage, and this happened, that happened, that it's really how these women spoke and continue to speak to one another over cross-generational, cross-racial, cross-social. And I just, and I just love it. And I was not a country music fan per se until I started working on this project and now I'm obsessed with it. Well, yeah, like, because uh, if you think about the high women and where they yeah. ended up, yeah. I mean, I'm sure that's where, that's why I was asking if it goes up to now, because yeah. the high women are such an answer to so much stuff that yeah. uh, I can see why it's a brilliant idea to make that doc. So, so you go put together a deck and then you'll go see all the networks and say, hey, I want to do this four-parter. Let me give you the bones of what I think this could be. Do you come in with attachments to Allison? Like, I know I can speak to Dolly or I know I can speak to, um, you know, Emmylou Harris. Like, how does that, how does that work? Or at this point, do they just trust that you'll go and get those people? It, it, it differs from every project on, on this one. We have in the country music one, we, we have the, we are partnered. I'm partnered with Lightbox, which is a company in LA and U- the UK and also UMG Polygram. And we have UMG Nashville's blessing. So we have a lot of support. Oh, that's great. This will get. Yeah. I hope so. It's not, it's, you know, we're, it's, yeah, it's a tough time to sell stuff. Even for you. Well, it's tough for everybody. I, I, I agree with that. Um, are you listening to cocaine and rhinestones? No, not now. 
you can't, you know, the, 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 the podcast, you might yeah. like it. Yeah, no, I'm sure. I've just, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Maybe you don't want to get influenced by it. All right. The last thing I'll mention on that is, have you watched Heartworn Highways ever? No. You, that's really old, but would be worth your time. Okay. I don't know if you know, do you know about it? No. From like the seventies. And it's all about Guy Clark and Towns Van Zandt and, and the first group of these singer songwriter dudes. And you just might, it might, you might like it as context. Great. For what you're going to do. Fantastic. Um, it's a really, it's, it's a very legendary doc in a certain way. All right. Sorry. I don't want to get distracted. <laughs> but this subject is like one I really care a lot of, about. So I can't wait for you to. Well, what is it about these music stories, Allison, that draws you in? Uh, you know, first of all, I love music and I love all kinds of music. Um, and I, I just think that they are ripe with characters because they, you know, there's the artistic thing that people are drawn into. There's, you know, the how people choose to partner with one another create creatively, um, and and how that often becomes that becomes incredibly dynamic and also explosive. It is. It, it's like Alex's series of you know, lightning in a bottle. It's absolutely lightning in a bottle. And how rare is that? And you can't really contain it. And nine times out of 10, if not 99 times out of a hundred, it'll blow up. Um, but, yes. but what's, what happens in before that is magical. And I like magic. <laughs> no, for sure. Were you, well, so were you surprised at the way the Go-Go's film caught the, cause the Eagles were a huge, you know, never stopped being a huge story. But the Go-Go's had kind of stopped being a huge story. And you made them a huge story again. And did you have a sense when you were working on it or showing it to friends at first, like, oh, this one's special? I had no doubt that film would be a hit because the story is so great. And the, the, the women are so fun. I mean, it's a fun film to watch. Yeah, it really is. And and moving too, though, yeah. right? Yeah. It's fun, but it's moving also. Um yeah, I mean, it's like I always like to say that the Eagles was a film about male um, anger, and the Go Go's is a film about female pain. I love that, right? And yet, both totally rewatchable. I, yeah, what do you think it is that makes your stuff? Or maybe you've never thought about it, but people often say about the the stuff that my partner and I do that it's very rewatchable, and and we do it in a certain way. There's a part of what we do that is conscious of that. Uh, when we were kids, we liked to watch movies over and over again together. Yeah. My creative partner was my lifelong best friend. And so there are ways that stuff get, got buried that we would pick up as viewers that we intentionally did in our early stuff. Are you, cause like I've watched the Eagles documentary seven times and, uh, and Laurel Canyon, I've already watched twice and, and not cause I was interviewing you, like just to do it. Are you conscious that you're making these things that are have candy in them that you can kind of find along the way, like an Easter egg on? Sometimes. And sometimes I don't know. Um, you know, I mean the Go-Go's I, and you, the Eagles I knew, um, Laurel Canyon, I definitely knew. Um, it, you know, I guess, I know, I guess so, but I don't think of it at the time. I think when it's done, that's when I think about it. And you know, there, yeah, I don't think I, I don't think about it at the time. At the time, you're just trying to 
make it make sense. <laughs> well, that's for sure. Yes, documentaries are so hard to lock yeah. in and know that you've done it. Well, and 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 then how do you know? Or maybe this is just over time, or maybe it's instinct. But the, the Manson section, and particularly that incredibly haunting story um, of the visit from two of the Manson family to the lead singer of that band's house. Um, was it hard not to follow that story longer and make it even more central? Did you know that story was going to show up when you did the interview with him? But uh, how, how did that get incorporated? And then how do you know how much real estate? No, it all overhangs the whole second half of the documentary. But how much of that is sort of intellectually thought out ahead of time? And how much of it happens as you're as you're going. Um, I didn't know that Johnny Eccles was going to tell that story um, about being visited by, and I'm forgetting the kid's name, shit, yeah. from Manson. Uh, I didn't know that he was going to tell that story. That was a surprise to me. Um, but I absolutely knew that Manson was going to be a part of the story. In fact, we had, in, in the deck, we structured it that 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 story was going to be the act one, act, you know, part one, part two break point, that 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 was where the darkness comes in. So we knew that that was going to, but I also knew I didn't want to dwell on it because this wasn't a film about Manson. Um, it was, that was just part of what happened there, but it, but it colored everything. And that was more important to me was how it colored everything. Not the detail right. of it. Yeah. That makes complete sense that it, it does just turn the thing a different hue, a darker hue. Yeah. But I, as a filmmaker, it seems to me that's hard. That's a hard dial in a way um, to know exactly if you're dialing it in enough. Is that the kind of thing you test with not like official test, but is that the kind of thing where you'll show an hour to groups of people and, and see how it plays for you? Or are you going on your own sense the whole time? You know, again, it's different in every case, but in that particular one and how it dealt with the man's that, that was when I just sort of dug my heels in and said, because like the, the last shot of part one where they're, the car is driving down the PCH and the girls come walking, singing over the cliff. Yeah. Um, some, some of the people that will look at it the first time, like, what the hell is that? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, even if you don't know, you know it's creepy, right? And they're like, yep. Yes. <laughs> like, okay, right. that's all you need. <laughs> right. So then you knew that that was like what yeah. you, where you wanted it to be. So was uh, was it hard the first couple of years? Like like when the Eagles doc blew up, did it open a bunch of doors for you? And also ha had that level of sort of name awareness happened to you before that? And, and did it? Did you have to decide, okay, I have a little bit of a moment of an opportunity here. I have to now make choices in a different way or did it change nothing? I mean, certainly people you know, knew my name more because of it, but I, I don't, you know, so probably things came to me that might not otherwise have, um, perhaps even the Go-Go's, although, I mean, I think that they certainly saw the Eagles film and then saw my other work. I think it came in that order. So that certainly impacted that one, I, I, I would imagine. I mean, I, I mean, I, people tell me, I hear all the time how much people love that film, which is great. Um, I don't feel like things changed overnight in any way for me. You think it's been more of like a slow and steady kind of advancement in, in, in your career than sort of a couple of big moments where 
suddenly the, the industry was more welcoming? Yeah, I mean, I wish it had been a bigger moment, you know, it's like, you know, um, you know, you, yeah, but I, I, you know, I don't know if things work like that, or maybe I'm not aggressive enough. I don't know. Well, yeah, that's the second time you said something sort of like that. I mean, yeah, how much is career? I mean, I think part of what makes from all the people I talk to on here and work with, like, how important is the career as stuff to you? Or has that never been like, you know, I know Alex a little and it's clear he has a motor in him that makes him need to be successful. And is that just not as much of a driver for you? No, I wouldn't say that. I'm, I, I definitely want to be successful. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm loath to say it's, it, I'm not as competitive as Alex, that's for sure. Right. But, um, but no, of course I want my career to be successful. And I feel like I'm, I'm aggressive in that sense. It's, it's, uh, it's just been, honestly, it's been harder than I think it should have been. It's, and I don't know if that's because I'm a woman. That's why I was hesitating before to say, oh, I don't know if it's because, again, I, I, I need to be more aggressive with it. And I'm just not by nature an aggressive person. Doesn't mean I don't have ambition. Yes, of course. When you say harder than it should have been, you mean the work of the Kesey film and the Eagles film should have really been enough for people to say, Okay. And then you do American G to, to say like, Hey, if we have a documentary, this person should be on that, that list of five calls of them calling Gibney and, and Burlinger, let's say Allison should be right in that, in that thing. And maybe the fact that you're a woman you think could have affected that at some point. I don't know. I don't really want to feel that way, but I can't, it, I mean, I, I just, I feel like it should be much easier for me to sell stuff that I pitch you know, we have good stories, we have good films that were, you know, and I spent a lot of time working on it and it just seems harder and harder to get stuff sold. And I don't know if, you know, I don't know why that is. Um, you know, I, 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 I refuse to think it's because I'm a woman. I just don't think that's it. I don't know what it is. I mean, I even, I'm not a woman and I've uh, like, you know, like you've had a, like a long career where at various times I thought it should have been easier. And you, you sometimes do wonder, I think all of us do. I do think it's way hard to not think. I know it's way harder for women for a whole variety of reasons. There's zero doubt in my mind it's so much harder. I also know the feeling of thinking like, haven't I shown you that I know how to do this? Like, don't you know? Can't you, right? Like, can't you look at the go? Like I just made the Go-Go's film last year and, and it was like the biggest documentary. And it worked exactly the way that I said when you passed on it, whoever you are. So shouldn't you now, I, like I completely relate to that frustration. I've had it and that various times in, in my, I think all of us have, but I do think it's, it's harder when you're any kind of outsider in a way. Um, and sadly still women are sort of outsiders as directors, even though it's changing. Yeah. Well, it's definitely changing and I want to, you know, focus on the positive of that and, and I'm, you know, I'm working on a complete side project right now that my mother, um, who passed away many years ago, but in the early 80s, wrote a, a beautiful, beautiful play, stage play, that um, Peter O'Toole agreed to act in. The Kennedy Center was oh. produced, and so she went and spent a week in London, and he and she and Peter O'Toole worked through some kinks in the script, all set to go, and then everything fell apart at the last minute, and. And I have resurrected it and I'm rewriting it a bit. And I'm seriously thinking that might be a next venture for me. 
Oh, to put the play on. You're going to direct yeah. the play. Yeah. Oh, that's phenomenal. Yeah. That's great. Have you thought, I mean, staging is like, I think the hardest, have you thought a lot about staging as a, you know, as opposed to people naturally moving in their environments, having a sort of stage? Yeah. I mean, my mom wrote it with, you know, she was an actress, you know, you know, when she was much younger. Um, so she wrote it with that in mind and, you know, and I'm changing some of it, but the, you know, stage is definitely, you know, very aware of that. It's a play within a play too. So it's a lot of, uh, wow. playing around with the stage itself is, is almost a character. Um, so, but again, you know, I, I feel like, you know, Oh God, I've never directed a play. This is going to be starting the whole thing over again. You know? Yeah. But that keeps you alive as an artist. I mean, that's yeah. fantastic yeah. Know that you're doing that. And, and do you still love doing the thing that you do? Do you still love making that? Like when you find a great story and great characters, is it, did it still excite you the first day of shooting, the first time you're looking at a cut of a scene? Absolutely, yeah. No, it's thrilling. It, what, what's, what's more exciting than looking at a first cut, what's really exciting is when little moments work and there's a, yeah. and there, those just little moments of magic. And there are always surprises. You, you couldn't have anticipated it. You couldn't have even thought of it until it appeared yeah. in front of you. And that thrills me. Yeah, it's thrilling when I get to watch that stuff in one of your documentaries. <laughs> you. I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, just as a last thing, how do you deal with friends coming up to you and saying, "Oh my God, this would be such a good documentary"? <laughs> What's your stock answer? What do you say? Um, it happens all the time, and I, I generally I'll look stuff up or look into it, and nine times out of ten, someone's already on it. Wow, you're you do that work of like you'll actually go look it up. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Yeah, you never here. know. <laughs> you really want to find the story. Um, Allison Elwood, thank you so much for doing this. I love giving people a peek inside your process. Do you put pictures up on social media? Are you on Instagram or anything I, or no? I am, but I just like once in a while put pictures of my donkey or pig up there. All right. Well, if you want to see some pictures of some rescued animals, go to <laughs> uh, Allison Elwood's Instagram. Uh, you can find me at Brian Koppelman on Twitter. Allison, thanks so much for doing this. Please keep making films. Thank you, Brian. You too. Love your work as well. <laughs>